Hello, and welcome to Beyond Japan, an interdisciplinary podcast that looks at the broad reach of Japanese studies from within and beyond Japan. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Japanese Studies at the Sainsbury Institute for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures, in collaboration with the University of East Anglia. I'm your host, Oliver Moxon, Research Project Coordinator at the Sainsbury Institute and Researcher of Japanese War Heritage. This week we are joined by Dr. Christopher Harding, Senior Lecturer in Asian History at the University of Edinburgh to discuss Japanese as other. Drawing on his career as a cultural historian and his experience presenting a number of BBC productions on Japan, I asked Chris about how Japanese people have been othered, presented as something wholly different from other societies, and how he reconciles with that as someone longer accustomed to Japanese culture. We hope you enjoy the show. Good afternoon, Chris. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. So first of all, we'd like to know a bit more about you. Can you tell us about your area of expertise and how your interests have brought you there? Yeah, so I write on uh, modern Japan, also on modern India, and I'm really interested in their cultural relationships uh, with the West. So I write on things like religion, uh, spirituality, philosophy, and also about mental health. Right, so a really broad spectrum there. <laughs> <laughs> it is, yeah. So in terms of how, how I got here, I suppose when I was young growing up encountering Japan on the TV one of the really interesting things about it and it's obvious and it's a bit of a cliche was how different it all seemed from the sort of upbringing uh, that I was having I think especially ours was a uh, a fairly strict Irish Catholic upbringing and when you get to that age where you start to wonder about doctrine and dogma and all this kind of thing and then you see in Japan people are just meditating and you don't have to believe anything or sign up to anything you just kind of sit there this was one of the really popular images while i was growing up anyway and mm. um, it suddenly seems fascinating and really attractive and like a very different way of um of approaching the world so i think i was quite attracted to that i see so before we start talking about how japan or the japanese are presented to the world i believe that our personal experiences of Japan shape our perceptions much more strongly than the media might. So could you begin by telling us your motivation for first visiting Japan, uh, your first impression on arrival, and how your understanding has changed since then? Sure, yeah. My first visit, uh, frighteningly, it was almost 20 years ago now. Huh. I'd been teaching some uh, Japanese language students in the UK, a wonderful job actually, taught them in the UK and then travelled around Europe with them also as part of this English language course that we did. And so they invited me to go out, uh, pay the return visit and go and see them. So I did. Um, and if I'm honest, I think my first impressions were uh, generally of disappointment. When you compare with the sorts of imagery that I'd grown up with, so, you know, that meditation in a temple, the verdant green rice paddies, the exciting neon of, it's always Shibuya and Shinjuku, isn't it, that ends up on the television. Um, compared to those things, the, the carpets and the walls in Narita Airport were quite drab and out of date. I got a bus into the city centre, so it was mostly motorway and concrete barriers. And I thought, well, this is the kind of thing we have at home. It just feels like I've come all this way for a traffic jam and you know and for yet more roadways so initially it was quite uh disappointing but then once you get into tokyo and i went across to uh chiba um suddenly it gets very exciting and you have all the things that foreigners notice first of all which is the the slightly smaller scale uh, of lots of things everything is new and shiny and clean and you've got convenience stores and all this sorts of things so i saw japan first i think from from the street seeing it 
probably in a very one-dimensional way because if you don't actually meet people and going to homes or have a purpose for being there then you do just get the tourist view but um but still after those initial moments of disappointment it was um it was a lovely and it was an exciting time heightened i suppose by being extraordinarily jet lagged so everything appears <laughs> even more vivid doesn't it when you're yeah. uh, when you're sleep deprived yeah and uh it's me asking where you first went to in japan then was it tokyo so uh, yes, Tokyo, and then um, I was put in my friend's car, and he played Aerosmith very loudly, and we drove <laughs> around the center of Tokyo all night, and we went across to Yokohama as well. It was strange. It was a kind of aimless driving. I don't think he had an idea of what he really wanted to show me, other than to, I suppose, share what his average night out would be. I mean, he was in his early 20s, so they would go from kind of club to club or conveni to conveni without kind of a clear itinerary just wandering around enjoying the music and having a bit of a chat and he was constantly smoking a cigarette so still quite strong memories i suppose actually a little bit random uh and as i say very very jet lagged but um very pleasant nonetheless and so how has your experience of japan and understanding of japan changed since that first moment um, I suppose in two ways or because of two things. One is going back there quite frequently in a professional capacity. So I, I worked in Japan for uh, a little while at a language school and then later for the Asahi newspaper. So, you know, you're seeing the inside of a newsroom, you're going out to do features, interviews, you're doing reviews of things. So you get a sense of the buzz that, that was Tokyo, you know, a sense of the buzz of Tokyo a little bit. I lived in a lovely seaside place called Chigasaki, just on the Pacific uh, coast not too far outside from Tokyo. So you get perhaps the slightly more relaxed side of Japanese life, not being inside a city. I suppose the second part was I ended up marrying uh, a Japanese woman and so spending a bit of time with family out there. So you start to encounter a Japanese family in a neighborhood from the inside. Um, it was quite a remote little place just outside Okayama City and I was constantly being uh, not mistaken for Harry Potter but called Harry <laughs> Potter in, I think anyone with dark hair and 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 you know dark glasses as well dark rimmed glasses that really uh, speaks Harry Potter to people so having those different dimensions I think of Japan over the years it, it gets you away from that sort of street level tourist appreciation which still has a lot going for it but it's not quite the same as as belonging somewhere i think it's a very different sort of japan that you encounter where you at least to some extent belong somewhere definitely so let's look at how the japanese nation has affected our view of the japanese people uh, japan as a nation has a long history of being viewed as unique different in the extreme with a number of historical events being pointed to as evidence of this uniqueness these include its rapid industrialization in the 19th century, the naval triumph over Russia in 1905, its legacy as the first Asian nation to become a colonizer, and miraculous post-Asia Pacific War economic revival. As a cultural historian, how have the actions of the Japanese Empire and later the nation influenced foreign opinion on its people? Ah, so it's a lovely summary there. Um, I would probably say that at the beginning of the period that you are talking about, we, we talk about Japan's, as it were, opening up to the West after the Meiji Restoration of 1868. If you look at, there's lots of really entertaining travel diaries written by Brits, Americans and others heading out to Japan, 1870s, 1880s, 1890s. Um, and normally you find a, a curious mixture, I think, of pride and pleasure on the one hand, because Japan seems to be 
rapidly modernizing, rapidly remaking itself in the image, in many ways, of the West. And the pride and pleasure there is obvious because these people come from a part of the world where there's a strong view of a century of achievement behind them, industrialization, modernization, civilization even. And to see a country like Japan, essentially, imitation is a strong word, but at least heavily inspired by a lot of that, you know, industry, banking, suits, using knives and forks, opera, anything you want to name, really doing all those things, you know, in a Japanese way, but in a recognizably Western way at the same time and flourishing as a result. So lots of people enjoy comparing, I suppose by 1900, what Japan has achieved versus what China, which doesn't, um, for various reasons, modernize in the same way, uh, what China fails to achieve. And it becomes underlined, doesn't it? 1894 to five uh, Japanese victory over the Chinese. It's taken by some Westerners as a, a victory of Western style modernization over Asian backwardness. And you know, these, these are the sorts of terms, I think, in which people think. So that would be one side of it. I think the other, probably further into the early 1900s, is a creeping sense of worry. You know, on the one hand, it's great that Japan is remaking itself, strengthening itself. But the obvious question is, where does that end? And what might the implications be for Western powers with colonial interests in Southeast Asia, or of course the Americans across the Pacific, they're very much interested in the Asia-Pacific region uh, generally. And so there's an anxiety about how much the Japanese empire might build itself up, how quickly it might become um, a threat. And also for the Americans in particular, there's quite uh, high levels of Japanese migration, particularly to the, the Western seaboard of the United States. And some people don't like that. They don't like Chinese migration either. So there's a, a racial anxiety about the Japanese, I think, at the same time. So all the way up to the Second World War, those two things are, um, I think, going on side by side, pride and pleasure and interest at what the Japanese are doing and a worry about where all this might eventually be going. Yeah, I see. It's interesting to hear about these um, racial anxieties appearing before the war even begins because it's often tied up with the propaganda that came out in wartime so it's true yes i mean that, that that's where things really ratchet up but even in the 1920s there's a legislation in america that effectively bans um japanese migration also other thing people point to is after the first world war the treaty of versailles the japanese had wanted to have a racial equality clause put in there but that was refused and from a japanese point of view you know western colonization imperialism really gets going again after the after the first world war as though that war had never really happened. So if I suppose if Germany after the First World War develops this sense of a have-not nation, and people like Hitler play on that quite effectively, in Japan also there's a sense of a have-not nation, but it has that distinctive racial element to it. You know, just to give you an example, I was reading a book, reviewing a book actually about Pearl Harbor, you know, we're at the anniversary now, the 80th anniversary, and I was reminded in that book that after the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, there was still nervousness in the um, upper echelons of Japanese politics that in the end, even though the Japanese were allied with Hitler, Perhaps in the end, Hitler would choose to stick with other white Anglo-Saxon nations against the Japanese, that that racial element might undermine the Axis powers and Japan would be left out on a limb. So um, 
really it's it's a real thing i think all the way from the 1910s through to the 1930s and 40s and onwards actually yeah definitely so following japan's defeat and american occupation in 1945 there was a seven-year period where scap the supreme commander for the allied powers tried to reinvent the image of the japanese people from strange merciless emperor fanatics to peace and later capitalism loving allies what is the legacy of this externally imposed cultural makeover Mm. That's a good question. I think it's worth pointing out, maybe briefly first, that some of those uh, images of the Japanese that uh, the Americans were possibly seeking to redo in this period were actually the product of American propaganda anyway. Um, people could have a, a bit of fun by looking up online a cartoon made... I think it was early 1940s, mid-1940s, certainly some point during the, the war in any case, called Tokyo Jokio, T-O-K-I-O, and then J-O-K-I-O. This was the turning of um, America's cartoon industry to highly racialized propaganda uh, against Japan, which often included this sense of slavish cult-like devotion to a mystical emperor. And, you know, you only have to go through the jails of Japan during the war and probably overhear people's private conversations at the dinner table to find out that very few people had that kind of slavish, unquestioning devotion to mm. begin with, um, even though it was, you know, very much part of the image of the Japanese uh, amongst the Western allies. Um, so, w with that, with that said, I would say that the occupation of Japan, people would probably agree. You know, various historians, I think, would probably agree that it was pretty successful. Um, one thing it did, which perhaps isn't always appreciated, is by doing away with the old leadership, it actually gave space to plenty of people in Japan, from feminists to socialists to communists, to radical democratic liberals, people in Japan who wanted Japan to be a very different place from the sort of country that it became across the 1930s. So with the old leadership gone, these people were either being released from prison or they were able to now agitate for what they wanted. So that when you have women getting the vote uh, during the period of the, the uh, occupation, when you have the constitution being revised, all these radical moves being made, land reform so that you have far fewer people being tenants on other people's land and you can own your own agricultural land. These were things that were chalked up to the occupation, but which were actually being called for in Japan a long time before the occupation. But it couldn't be done because of the nature of um, of power in Japan. So some of these things that the occupation achieved, I think it's it's quite important to give due credit to the people of Japan who had called for these things, planned these things, risked quite a lot actually in agitating for them unsuccessfully, you know, before 1945. So I think that would be one big element of it. I think the other element, yeah, there was a really healthy influx of young Americans into Japan as part of the occupation who wanted Japan to be an even more socially democratic place uh, than the United States was at that point. And to an extent, they left their mark. I suppose the other element of it that people would want to point out is that the first two or three years of the occupation were very much like that, were very much a social democratic experiment. The second half, we sometimes talk about the reverse course, a few things come together to persuade the Americans to change what they're doing in the occupation. One is American taxpayers, particularly big business types, worry that they're effectively funding the turning of Japan into a socialist basket case. They say, we can't trade with this place if you have so many strikes, if you have really powerful trades unions. And also it's costing uh, a lot of money. So they say we need to gently push Japanese politics in a more conservative direction. Other thing, of course, is the outbreak of the Cold War. Uh, worries about the Soviet Union, Chinese Revolution in 1949. And so that all 
changes the direction of things after about 1949, 1948, 1949, so that by the end of the occupation, it's perhaps a little bit more of a mixed result. Yes, Japan is more democratic than it was. It's also still culturally very conservative. You then have this legacy of a single political party, the LDP, Liberal Democratic Party, being in power almost non-stop from 1955 to the present day. So I think critics of the occupation would say, well, how successful was democratization if Japan still now doesn't really have a functioning two-party system? So it's a mixed, I think it's probably a mixed bag for those sorts of reasons. Mm, definitely. So I'll take a bit of a chronological leap now to look at how Japan is presented to the world today with inbound tourism skyrocketing from 5 million visitors in early 2002 to over 31 million visitors in 2019 and over 3.8 million foreign learners of Japanese as of 2019, there seems to be a shift from people viewing Japan as a distant other to wanting to engage with the language, people and culture firsthand. So how has this altered contemporary representations of Japanese people? I think people have a lot more nuance on Japan uh, than they used to. And, I, and I, I take this from, you know, various events where I give talks and listen to what people are asking or see how they're responding to the questions that other people in the audience raise. If I think back to, I don't know whether you saw any of these, but the documentaries that um, people like Clive James made uh, on Japan for the BBC, I think Clive James was absolutely brilliant. I thought he was wonderful, hilarious, a great wit and seemed like a wonderfully warm person. Um, but if you look at some of the images in those documentaries, the way he talked about the strangeness of Japanese food, the oddness of the culture. I remember seeing another BBC documentary from around that time, or perhaps a little bit earlier, where they were talking about Japanese jazz and they were saying, well, the musicians are very efficient uh, what they do. They're very proficient at their instruments, but they don't really get jazz because you need a certain kind of soul that the Japanese simply don't have. So, <laughs> I, I think those sorts of things have more or less uh, disappeared now. And I would credit it mainly, I think, to this huge pop culture boom. You know, Japan really goes global in the 1990s, deals with Disney to show Japanese anime all around the world. Um, Japanese computer games are a big part of so many people's upbringings from mine um, onwards, I think, in the 1990s. Also the food, I suppose, although it's really hard to get decent sushi in a supermarket, it's at least <laughs> there, you know, we're familiar with the fact that these things uh, exist. So I think it's a lot, um, there's, there's a lot more out there if people want it. And some of the manga, uh, especially, although, you know, the content's often quite fantastical, if you put it together with travel guides, with popular books, uh, with TV programs, there's really no excuse for not having quite a rounded uh, and nuanced appreciation um, of Japan now. And I suppose one thing strikes me in the last few years, for historians, for people who are interested in, in politics and international relations, obviously China is now beginning to be of much greater interest, I think, than Japan. You know, Japan is politically stable, but the other side of that coin is that it's politically rather uninteresting perhaps whereas china for for many of the wrong reasons is interesting um but there doesn't seem to be maybe it'll change but there doesn't seem to be um the kind of pop culture diplomatic push from china um that we saw with japan so you don't find the ministries really trying to push particular acts or particular formats or particular kinds of media to try to you know, win hearts and minds for China. Japan has done that and still does it. South Korea has done it and still does it. Um, Chinese don't, I don't know 
why really or whether at some point they they probably will probably not on the communist end of things but perhaps the traditional china end of things perhaps we'll see it with next year's winter olympics mm. who knows um but i think the legacy of that for japan has been a lot of goodwill and uh, a lot more nuance in how we um, in how we look at their country definitely in your uh, excellent 2015 BBC broadcast, Misunderstanding Japan, you speak with Professor Naoko Shimazu, who, on the topic of outlandish Japanese TV shows, says that non-Japanese enjoy essentializing Japanese culture. Could you break down this idea of essentializing another culture? Is it another way of saying stereotyping, or does it go deeper than that? It's a good question. I It, it can end in stereotyping. I'm not sure that it starts there. Um, so if you think back to the Victorian era, uh, where you do get these people traveling out to Japan and, and, and writing for the benefit of audiences back home who are fascinated by these new places that, as it were, are being opened up. Um, one of the one of the great works from that period is called Glimpses of the Unfamiliar. This is um, Lafcadio Hearn. And I think that says quite a lot, that people are interested in something that seems very different to their own experience of the world. Is there something there that can either amuse or titillate or perhaps actually give them a new perspective on their own lives at home. You know, for all the uh, chauvinism and grandiosity of Western uh, colonialism in that era, there's also a lot of self-doubt about what's happening to Western societies and a curiosity about whether learning from places like Japan might change how things are done. Classically, you know, that happens in, I think, the philosophical and the religious spheres, whether it's a sense that Christianity at home is, is worn out or can't stand up to modern scientific findings or that church services don't really move people anymore. There's a lot of interest um, off the back of things like that um, in places like Japan. So, yes, the unfamiliar, the strange, the exotic, the potentially um, creative, there's a lot there but I think what tended to happen maybe then and certainly afterwards is that people's real sweet spot this is I suppose my theory on it people's real sweet spot for discovering somewhere new is a mixture of the unfamiliar on the one hand in the sorts of ways that I've said uh, but also the familiar on the other people don't want to be completely at sea when they're trying to understand a new place so what you get with Japan is a combination of all these wonderfully new um, elements of the culture and the people and the language and all the rest alongside a series of quite crude claims oh the Japanese are like this the Japanese are like that it's possible and I even hear it now that's so Japanese mm. increasingly I don't really know what people mean when they say that but you do hear that phrase a lot don't you or certainly yeah. I think you did a generation um, ago so there's a desire to have some kind of grasp on what Japan is even if it's quite simple I think back in the 80s when people were desperately trying to strike up business relationships with Japan you know, when the economy was growing so rapidly, there would be books like Japanese cultural keywords, a sense that if you could learn these 10 or 15 key concepts uh, from Japan, you would suddenly understand the culture and, and be able to make decent money there. So I think that kind of thing comes, as I say, from that sweet spot between the unfamiliar and between having some kind of grasp of it. And I think I totally agree with Professor Shimas, you do as a result get a a certain degree of stereotyping as a result. But I think with the new generation that have come through since the 90s and the noughties, that's a lot harder to do with a straight face, which is obviously a good thing. Yeah, definitely. And do you find that um, there's a sort of internal essentializing Japanese culture in Japan where you have people, I mean, this discourse is on its, on its way out now, but the, there was Nihonjin-ron and this idea of, the, of Japanese uniqueness and uh, you would have salarymen reading books like uh, um, Sashi Miyamoto's Five Rings to understand Japanese business acumen. So do you find that there's a similar element going on domestically as well as internationally? 
It's a great question. Yes, I, I, th I think so. I think that probably goes right back, actually, um, and I won't give you a long lecture on it, but you can see elements of that back in the late uh, 1800s because you get people in Japan who are saying, well, it's great that we have all these Western ideas and institutions, etc., coming in, but what do we have to contribute to, as it were, an emerging global culture? So you do get intellectuals in Japan who are, as it were, rummaging around in the cultural cupboard and thinking, well, we have, maybe it's, Bushido, you know, the way of the warrior, and a superior form of what in Europe might be medieval chivalry. We have, yeah, Zen Buddhism. That's actively promoted from the late 1800s onwards as being, as it were, quintessentially Japanese. There's a sense that the genius of Japan is something that you can't even put into words. And that being the case, you have to fall back on Zen and you have to fall back also on Japanese aesthetics. So there's a lot of what you might call self-mythologization um, that went on in the late 1800s, early 1900s. There's a reason why almost all of us have heard of Zen and very few of us have heard of Jodo Shinshu, which is another um, Buddhist sect bigger than Zen in, in many ways in Japan and yet of less interest because it was a bit closer to Christianity in some ways. So that went on. I think after the war, you do get another um, another generation doing the same. I think it's a response to the fantastic growth of the Japanese economy. You know, you mentioned uh, Nihon Jinron theories uh, about the Japanese. These are extraordinarily popular in Japan because people see a country that was on its knees in 1945 and yet builds itself up again so rapidly that by the end of the 1960s, it's really one of the great economic powers in the world. So I think a lot comes off the back of that. And the same way as I think happened in the late 1800s, early 1900s, it happens again in the 60s and 70s, which is that people in Japan who are doing this self-mythologization find natural allies in the West who wonder how you have such social harmony in Japan, how companies work well without all this kind of trade union uh, um, aggravation that you see at various points in, um, in Western Europe, you know, emerging from the Second World War. So those two working together, people inside Japan, people outside Japan, both of whom, for various reasons, want to look for uniqueness in Japan want to look for something uh, special, um, that I think it's fairly natural that that kind of thing uh, does go on. I suppose now you've got a generation of people coming through, people like the film director uh, Koreeda Hirokazu, you know, his film Shoplifters um, mm. a couple of years ago, who are keen on offering a bit more nuance, showing the dark sides of Japanese life, even the failures in Japanese life, perhaps particularly since the crash of 2008, 2009. So I think that self-mythologization now is um, still there, but it's harder to get away with it because more and more on our screens, we see uh, nuanced and often more negative uh, views of Japan. Yeah, definitely. And I think through my own research, an area of interest is is the, is the Japanese language. And I'm, that must have had a, a large impact on this sort of uh, mythologization and that uh, literature on Japanese, on Japanese identity, is it's quite insular. And uh, until very recently, there hasn't been a lot of collaboration between uh, Japanese and non-Japanese ac academic texts, for example. So uh, do you have any th thoughts on that? I think that's interesting. I wonder whether you would agree with um, another contributor to the uh, documentary you mentioned, Ian Bulama, who said he thought one of the major reasons why some of this mythologizing or stereotyping has gone on about Japan is that the language is so uh, inaccessible. 
you know, to so many people without a decent amount of effort. Of course, it can be learned, mm. but it takes a while, as you yourself should yeah. know, um, that that's one reason for it. And I suppose I partially agree with that. But I think then now and again, when you see, for example, the storming of the, the US Capitol, what was it, last year, um, that we think, well, how much do we really understand the United States? Or when you get these various <laughs> kind of gun crime stories, um, it, it, it's not as though uh, it's easy to understand someone just because you do share their language. And I think I'd agree with Ian Burma to a large extent, nevertheless. I think the other thing is, when, when I've tried to get into these conversations in Japan, and be interesting to hear your experience of it, I have tended to come up against two difficulties. One is that people will sometimes say, well, unless you are Japanese, you can't really understand what it's like. If there's some point that you're making about Japanese history or culture or even, God forbid, Japanese psyche, if there is such a thing, mm. um, as a foreigner, in the end, people will think, well, come on, what would you know about it? You're not Japanese. You don't come from here. You haven't. Even if you've been there, if you've been there for a while and you're extraordinarily fluent in the language. And I think of someone like the great Donald Keane. Um, uh, you do get cut some slack by the Japanese, but otherwise it's very easy to dismiss a, a non-Japanese opinion, in which case it becomes circular. Because if you're trying to argue something about Japan, people say, well, you don't get it because you're not Japanese. You think, well, we're sort of cutting ourselves off, aren't we, from having any kind of conversation there. I think the second thing that sometimes happens in my experience is if you go beyond a certain point in asking questions or offering a critical commentary, you can be accused of Japan bashing or of having this rather supercilious Western attitude, um, which says that, you know, how we do things in Britain is just light years um, ahead of the way people do things in Japanese. My wife used to work in a, um, a Japanese language school and she, <laughs> part of her day job was to put up with foreigners stuttering away in Japanese, telling her about how retrograde Japan was on everything from treatment of women to its lack of, you know, <laughs> serious democracy um, and how things were much better back in Britain or the US, etc. So there is a certain degree to which I think Japanese people do get annoyed with being uh, lectured by Westerners in particular about Japan, and that can become perhaps a barrier in itself alongside the language. Um, but that's rather a long answer. I mean, what would your answer be from the purpose of uh, language, I wonder? Well, I suppose um, what comes to mind is when I was last in Japan and when you were abroad in, in Kyoto, um, and I achieved a pretty decent level of Japanese conversational skills and how whenever I would uh, first approach a Japanese person it would almost always assume that I knew nothing about Japan based on my appearance and even if I were to initiate a conversation in Japanese with someone they might respond to me saying sorry I don't speak English um, so it's, it's this, this sort of uh, preconception that if you're not Japanese, then you're not. You, you probably don't speak Japanese, and you probably don't know much about Japan. And so, uh, when you talk about the riots in America, for example, um, as English is the national language, there is, there's at least open an openness to international commentary, I guess. Which perhaps there's a bit of a barrier to that when it comes to Japan. That's true, isn't it? Although I suppose we seem to, have, as Brits, we've perhaps blotted our copybook around the world, you know, given our 
modern history so that if you i mean i work on india as well i'd traveling and, and talking to people in india i'd be quite careful about the tone <laughs> took in any critical commentary uh on on india and it's the same to an extent i wonder with the united states i remember a while ago um when there was a british editorial in one of the newspapers advising the americans on who to vote for in their election you know because it has an impact on the rest of the world and some very angry commentary um in response saying we got rid of your stupid monarchy you <laughs> blah blah how dare you lecture us on what to do so yeah there's always that that danger i think possibly with japan um as well i think from speaking to people in japan one extra element perhaps is there's a sense that we talk a lot about the international community i think for people in japan within living memory um in the 1920s 1930s and then again after the second world war the use of that phrase international community to really mean anglo-american self-interest mm. you know whether it's the league of nations or then uh the united nations um this aspiration to have international norms up to a certain point most japanese would fully support human rights that's fine but when you go beyond that what's the difference between advocating international norms on the one hand and insisting on a kind of anglo-american monoculture on the other so i think there is you know potential real grievance there i suppose my tip for people my experience would be obviously to learn the language but then also go to a bar and have many many drinks with people <laughs> and the conversations get far more interesting you know Definitely. after a few drinks uh, are had i've had some amazing conversations about japan's modern history the kind of stuff that you know we'd normally never dare touch on with people who we're meeting for the first time um i think that's really the way the way to do it. a well lubricated conversation Definitely. And I might suggest hot springs are surprisingly a good place to have these conversations to oh, have found. That's a good idea. <laughs> yes, that's a good tip as well. Catch people when they're relaxing. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Well, I don't want to get a chance to go back again. Sure. So uh, for my last question, I'd like to talk with you as two people who spent a lot of time in Japan, learned the language and immerse themselves in the culture. On coming home, when I tell people that I went to Japan, I'll often be asked, what's it like? And I struggle to answer that question, not because it's so different, but because it feels quite familiar to me now. I find myself reaching for stories of unusual experiences, uh, such as robot museums and sumo wrestling matches, because the everyday just feels like another normal rather than an alien culture. Obviously, this experience of Japanese culture is reserved to a lucky few, but do you think Japanese culture is becoming increasingly normalized or familiarized in the UK, if not elsewhere? Mm. I think we're probably increasingly familiar with it for you know, the reasons we were touching on earlier on, especially since the 1990s, this boom of all sorts of cultural forms coming our way. I don't think it'll ever be, except for people that you know regularly deal with with Japan for work. I don't think it'll ever be entirely normalised because I don't think we're interested in, as it were, normal Japan. If we were, then Japanese politics would be in our news more. Various of Japan's uh, social problems might be in our news more. We tend to be interested in the ones that might perhaps be uniquely Japanese. I think the obvious one would be something like uh, hikikomori, you know, this problem of, as it were, social shut-ins. Young men in particular, but also girls who remain shut away in their bedrooms for months, sometimes even years on end, not going out for education or for getting a job. Um, and it being an, you know, there being the sense that they're somehow rejecting something about the society around them. I think we find that interesting because it's relatively unusual. We wonder what they might be um, rejecting and we think there might be something about uh, Japanese culture or even psychology there that we should um, pay attention to. Um, if it was entirely things that are 
very similar to what we have at home, I don't think there would be enough interest in it for it to become uh, normalized. I think people will always be interested in Japan for things that are done differently there, for better or for worse, you know, when you go as a tourist or if you're even just in your armchair looking for a bit of Japanese literature or manga or anime, there's always going to be a sense of um, escape there, mm. which I think as long as it doesn't end up boiling down to yet more unhelpful stereotypes is probably quite healthy. If you can approach Japan, you know, entirely openly, willing to be surprised and learn something as a result, then I think that kind of openness with a bit of excitement in there um, is hopefully not something to be terribly guilty about. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree with that. I would just think about your point of hikikomori earlier that uh, I do wonder if that is a bit essentializing because we do have a growing phenomenon of uh, young adults who are not in employment or educational training at the moment and staying with their parents for increasingly long periods of time. And um, I wonder if we've latched on to Hikikomori because it's Japan. We, we try and make it out to be a Japanese phenomenon and ignore that fact that it's, it's, it's happening increasingly in our own countries too. Um, but this can be a conversation we carry on in a later episode, if you prefer. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, maybe a quick thought on that before we wrap up. I'd, I'd certainly agree that we do have our own issues there. I don't know whether we have as much of a, of a difficulty, for example, with people literally never leaving the house, um, but certainly the, as it were, neat phenomenon, I totally agree, is, is very familiar from here. And I think, I think yes, you're, you're right. I think there's an idea that hikikomori is a sign of something more interesting about Japan, whether it's the social pressures, the fabled workaholism, whatever it might be, that we might discover something, as it were, about a putative Japanese psyche or soul if we invest hikikomori a little bit more. I think certainly that's been the tone of some of the popular media coverage of that, certainly. You know, that one interesting way to learn about a society is to discover its psychopathologies. But there can be a, yeah, a rather prurient and unhealthy way of doing that. And perhaps now and again, the coverage of hikikomori was in danger of shading into that. I think if people want to understand some of Japan's ills in a more balanced way, I'd probably recommend, if people haven't seen it, the Koreeda film that I mentioned shoplifters mm. i think that's well worth seeing if people haven't yet had a chance yeah definitely well thank you for answering my questions chris it's been a real pleasure uh, before we finish the episode could you share with us any other projects that you're working on at the moment uh, yes, um, it's very, very early days, but at the moment I'm working on a book about Westerners from the late 1700s to the present day who've been out to India and to Japan looking for some kind of philosophical or spiritual renewal. So I'm trying to follow that across the generations, see where it's been and see where it might be going next. Excellent. That'll be all out on the BBC at some point soon. Uh, yes, we are doing, I can plug it now, actually, I think February <laughs> next year on Radio 3, there's going to be a series of programmes on modernism, and there's going to be one on worldwide modernism, and we're going rather unusually to look at Japan, South America, and South Africa, side by side, in a single discussion. So if people fancy a bit of that, that's going to be um, Radio 3, Free Thinking, it's called the programme, sometime in February next year. Great. I'll be sure to tune to that one. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. It's been a real pleasure. Likewise. Thank you. You can find a link to Chris's research profile in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe on japaninnorwich.org or find us on your preferred podcast provider for updates on new episodes. Next week, we'll be joined by Dr. Eiko Honda, 
research and teaching associate in history at the Nissan Institute of Japanese Studies, and former Robert and Lisa Sainsbury Fellow at the Sainsbury Institute to discuss knowledge making during crises. As an historian of intellectual history, Eiko will explain the challenge facing knowledge producing institutions in tackling the crises of today, such as climate change and the COVID 19 pandemic. We will discuss moving beyond universal narratives from Euro American institutions to embracing a transnational approach to researching global issues. We hope you'll join us then. Thank you for listening.